It's been nearly two weeks since news of shell shock first made headlines, but the security industry has been vigilant in its efforts to fight back, with researchers and developers working day and night to identify and patch known bash vulnerabilities. Here, during this second part of a two-part interview, Mike Smith of online security firm Akamai discusses details surrounding the many different types of attacks against Bash that have been identified in the wild and reviews new patches that aim to safeguard systems, devices, and applications against those attacks. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. Mike, one thing that you mentioned was email, and I know in previous discussions that you and I have had, you've talked about the fact that email servers may be more vulnerable to shell shock than perhaps some of these um, you know, web applications or web servers that we've been talking about so much in the media. Can you talk a little bit about why email servers seem to be more vulnerable? From an attacker's perspective, what you're looking at is, how do I actually get the program I'm attacking to execute a shell? Okay, so knowing that that application has a call out to a shell, and how do I structure my request in such a way that that application I'm targeting actually hands over the exploit to the shell. We start to get into nuts and bolts really, really quickly with this. It's just usually maintenance programs or certain shell environments that the applications actually execute. The fix to this is understand that ultimately you're going to have to patch patch, right? A lot of people rolled out the first patch. A lot of people are getting pretty close to completing rolling out that second patch. Look at what are the details as they come out. Okay. And especially with the CVEs, there's one CVE that I know of that doesn't have all the details filled out yet. Right? So everybody's kind of waiting and watching, but it's really just a matter of patching on a per-server basis because every application that depends on a shell will execute that shell independently. Right? So it's not like, let's go find all the web applications that are all the different CGI pieces or all the different mail transport agents let's not go find all of the places where bash is actually invoked. Let's just find all the servers that have bash and make sure that those get the right patch when it's available. So based on what you've seen in the media and what's been talked about in the industry, going back to some of the quote-unquote misinformation, Mike, that you've talked about, do you think that we're paying too much attention to web vulnerabilities and not enough attention to the server vulnerabilities or this need for the server scans? That's a really good question. There are a couple different pieces there. One is that if you're out scanning looking for web servers, it's the easiest way to detect that a particular server has a vulnerability. Okay? Um, but I'd even go a step further than that. Really what you're looking for is where is this actual vulnerability exposed? Okay? However, once you know that there is a patch that's available, it becomes more of a where exactly are my servers that have bash installed and how can I roll out a patch to them? Okay. Um, we do know, very, very hands down, that attackers are out scanning for exploits in CGI bin, and we detect a ton of it. Right? So we took the vulnerability and all the CVEs, we've sat down, we've analyzed all these, looked at how they actually trigger, and what we found when it comes to the website of it is that there are a couple different ways that we can block it. Okay. One is that, and if, if you don't know Akamai, we, we deliver a whole bunch of web traffic. We sit as a proxy in between the web user and our customer's web servers. We proxy the traffic and we optimize it and we have some security pieces that fit in there. So we get lots of traffic. So we did our, our usual vulnerability drill and said, look, 
are we exposed to this, right? Is this something that we need to respond to now? And yes, we need to roll out patches, and we're doing that right now. It's just a longer process because we've got a lot of servers, and we can't reboot everything at the same time. So yes, we do use Bash. We, we have a lot of Linux servers, but we don't use CGI Banner. We don't expose that vulnerability in the ways that are easy to exploit. Then we look at what can we actually do to help our customers. And in this case, what we said was, well, the way to get this vulnerability exploited is you send the special sequence, and then you give some kind of command. And so we looked at, well, what kind of WAF rules do we have to actually block that? And a WAF is a web application firewall. And we said, well, here's a set of rules. Okay? Um, some of them are command injection rules. So what you say as an attacker for Shellshock, you say, here's the magical sequence. Now use wget or curl or netcat to download a tool and then run that tool. Okay? And a lot of these tools are Perl scripts or other bash scripts or something like ping, which says, go you know, test to see if you have connectivity to this other server. So looking at that, we said, well, those are command injection rules. We have WAF rules that will look for typical Unix command line programs in any field of an HTTP request. So we said, okay, th those will help out. We looked and saw that most of these exploits were calling a, a file that was someplace else and usually using HTTP or FTP to download that file locally and then execute it. Well, wherever you have a location that's either FTP or HTTP, there are sets of rules for that that detect that as a remote file include, okay, which is a common problem in web applications where you can say, oh, instead of loading this local file, reach out and grab this other file and include it in the response that you send back to me. So remote file include will catch a lot of the exploits that the command injection doesn't detect. Then additionally, there's the magical sequence of characters. And we, we actually built two WAF rules for that. The first one checks for the magical sequence, and the second one checks for the magical sequence plus the different ways that you can encode it. So we created two custom WAF rules for that. And then we made those available to our customers. So we've been doing lots of explaining over the past week from usually two different angles. One is, is Akamai patched? Are you, you know, I, my data traverses you guys. Am I going to get compromised through you? And in most cases, it was, no, we don't even have CGI bin or CGI programs available. So that isn't an issue. Yes, we're patching, but that's mostly patching to protect from ourselves. The second piece is, how can you guys help me and solve this problem of, of the scanners and exploits that are coming in. And at that point we said, well, here are the Shellshock specific rules. There are two of them. Go ahead and turn those on. And then turn on the command injection and turn on the remote file include and local file include. They're usually related. But turn on this half a dozen different rules, and that will actually protect you from getting this thing exploited. Based on that, we are looking right now at what kind of uses are we seeing for that exploit? And what we're seeing is, um, what, as I described it, a lot of exploit the vulnerability, and we're blocking this, right? But it's all in the same command line that we're actually detecting and blocking it. What we're seeing is use the exploit and then ping another service. So that way that service knows that you're vulnerable. I've seen security researchers out there scanning. 
White Hat Security, they provide security scans as a service. They have a check, and we've seen them doing a lot of customers checking to find where customers have CGI programs and checking to see if they're vulnerable. Um, we've seen other just pure play researchers looking to see what percentage of web servers out there are vulnerable to this particular exploit. The bad guys have been doing that. They're doing the same thing. They're looking, hey, is there an exposed server? And then if they find something that's exposed, they'll follow that up with an attack. The second group of uses of this that we've seen are the actual exploits. So what you'll see is, here's the magical string. Then use wget to download a dropper from someplace else. So download a script from someplace. And then execute that script. Most of the scripts either open up a channel to another command and control server and just create what we call a reverse shell directly there. Or they run basically an IRC client, join an IRC channel, and await for commands there. Most of these scripts have been sitting around for years. The reason people are so interested in CGI right now is that it's a good way to detect the vulnerability. It's also a large attack service from an attacker's perspective in that it's really easy to find and it's really easy to exploit. You just have to send the magical sequence of characters. So Mike, based on what you've seen so far, what would you say your greatest worry is right now? Right now, let's see, my greatest worry is unmanaged devices. And by unmanaged devices, I mean just like we had a couple years ago with Operation Ababel, is that there are people that have virtual private server accounts all over the place. Almost all of those run Linux. And so it turns into a community health issue where you can go in and patch all your stuff, right? well-maintained, good-functioning IT departments. They've got every device managed, not a big deal. Uh, on the Linux side, there are centralized patch management applications. Um, a lot of them are free. Um, I personally use a lot of Debian servers. Uh, you've got apt-get. I can go grab patches from the upstream um, distributor and install it, and it takes uh, literally for me, once I'm logged into a, a server that I own, to install a patch, it takes 30 seconds. It's not that big of a deal. right? We can manage our own devices. But where we run into problems are some of these virtual private servers that are out there where we saw they were distributing content management systems that were two years out of date. Right? They don't have up-to-date operating systems. They're not patching this stuff. And so what happens is that I can defend my own stuff. That's easy. Okay? It's other people's machines that are exposed. They get owned and then controlled by the attacker. And now I've got to worry about all the other attacks that they can actually launch from that as a platform. The other thing, and we're not seeing it as much, uh, but we will. It'll be the gift that keeps on giving, is a lot of firmware devices and network devices. Okay? A lot of those use BusyBox, which uses Ash, so they're not vulnerable. But there are enough out there that are running Linux with a Bash shell, and a lot of those use CGIBIM. So my home router, granted it's all on the internal side, I could go attack my own router. That doesn't do any much good. But some routers or cable modems will have interfaces exposed to where the ISP or the cable company or anybody who's maintaining it externally 
they can log in, they can issue commands, and then um, CGI is a good way to take those operating system commands that you need to perform to maintain those devices and make those available via the web, which is how you manage your own Wi-Fi router. So you've got all these devices, and the problem is that there isn't really good centralized device management for these. So I think we'll be discovering these for years to come in that you're receiving attack traffic from some somewhere, go look back and you're like, yeah, it's still vulnerable to, uh, to shell shock, and somebody else has gone in and started controlling it. Okay. So it's one of those where there's just a whole bunch of stuff. It's a huge install base. We can patch the stuff that we own, but we can't really patch everybody else. At some point, we need to take firmware devices, and they need to be more manageable. Um, right now, they're just really not network managed. And so, Mike, before we close, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us about what's missing in the way that we're addressing shell shock or what you think might be some of the top concerns that we haven't addressed and need to? Overall, things are going as you would expect for a large vulnerability like this. The package maintainers or the project maintainers issued a patch, went through some peer review. People said, hey, you didn't catch this thing and this thing and this thing. They worked with the operating system distributors to actually get the patch to them prior to public release. So that way, as soon as people go, oh, there's a vulnerability, oh, oh, but we've got a patch that's already available, so we just have to download it and patch it, that worked great. There was a little bit of a failing there where as more people started looking at the patch and the vulnerability, they found other ways to get it to ex actually execute, which is a thing, but you know, these, these things happen. But as far as, hey, the patches are there, they're available, people have done analysis on it, as an enterprise defending my servers, all you need to know is at this point in time, go grab the patch, update my servers. Let's continue to monitor as, as these new CVEs are worked and we get more information, and with more information comes patches. Stay on top and monitor it, and as patches become available, download and install them. But I think as an industry, we've done pretty much everything that we should have done. Mike, I'd like to thank you again for your time this afternoon. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Again, we've just heard from Michael Smith of Akamai. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.